It's August 1970, and a whole bunch of dope-smoking hippies are attending the governor's ball. Buck-ass naked. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORHistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. than by numerical happenstance, 1970 saw the death of the 60s. The summer of love was long gone, and as the days grew longer through that transformative year, a summer of revolution, hatred, and violence seemed to be upon the nation, and even Oregon. A riot at the park blocks in Portland in May of 1970 showed that Oregon was not immune to violence in the streets. Portland police, students, and other protesters clashed on May 11, 1970, sending 35 participants to the hospital. No one died, but the incident illustrated how incendiary the climate was. Incidentally, ORHistory.com will examine the melee in a future Kick-Ass Oregon History podcast, so be on the lookout for that episode. Reeling from this display of rancorous combat, city and state officials saw a bloody confrontation looming on the horizon. In late August of 1970, the American Legion's 25,000 members would hold their annual convention in Portland, Oregon, with the theme, Victory in Vietnam. President Richard Nixon was scheduled to speak to the assembled veterans. The atmosphere was ripe for trouble. Historian Doug Kank Crispin. It is fair to say that panic gripped Portland people. Soon a local group, the People's Army Jamboree, announced that they would have a counter-protest in Portland during the same week as the Legionnaires' Convention. The schedule of events listed a victory to the Vietnamese celebration and march. The radical group was defined as nonviolent, but impatient revolutionary factions within the organization advocated for more direct, confrontational actions. The governor's executive assistant, Ed Westerdahl, said that the FBI advised us that this was going to be the most volatile confrontation in the country. We took that very serious. Up to 50,000 protesters were expected to converge on Portland. Civic leaders were terrified. Oregon's Republican governor, Tom McCall, knew just what to do. He would host a giant five-day kick-ass rock festival. This next one is the first song on our new album. What the what? Oh, 
Well, it wasn't as easy as that, but it was close. Back then, the governor's office had an open-door policy. You could go down to Salem and walk right into the office and meet with the governor's staff. In what would be interpreted as a truly revolutionary move in our era, back in the 60s and 70s, politicians and policymakers in Salem actually sought out the input of their constituents. And a couple of hippies met with assistant Ed Westerdahl and convinced him that hosting a giant rock festival on state lands would draw all of the hippies away from the People's Army Jamboree activities and hence draw them away from Portland. No dirty hippies, no blood-stained streets in the City of Roses. Oh, and one more thing. These hippie promoters, called The Family, wanted Governor McCall to pay for it all. And guess what? He did. Not that the decision was easy for Governor McCall. When his assistant first presented the idea, McCall shouted, Westerdahl, are you crazy? Are you out of your goddamn mind? After a few minutes of reflection, the governor decided that this was the only way to stop the anticipated bloodshed. The nation's first and only state-sanctioned rock festival held on state property would be on 847-acre McIver Park in Clackamas County, about 30 miles southeast of Portland. To help keep everyone mellow, it was decided that no arrests were to be made for drug use in the park during the festival. Police were to be invisible. Governor McCall, facing a tough re-election campaign, told his assembled staff, I've just committed political suicide. Governor's aide, Ed Westerdahl, explains, Containment. That's why we picked McIver Park. Our intention was to draw the people out of the city, put them in a location where they could be contained, and Vortex was ideal. You have the river down at the bottom. The other side of the river was forest land, where you had to go a long ways before you could get anywhere, and there was a steep road down to McIver. The park literally provided only one entrance or exit, a corral where everyone could be locked in if shit went bad, man. Westerdahl continued to say that the state police were instructed to not give tickets for drug users. And furthermore, if the police came across young people looking for Vortex, to actually assist them in getting to McIver State Park. Oregon State Police literally escorted hippies to the park blocking side roads so that the straights wouldn't be engulfed in the ragtag caravan headed to Vortex. Long as everyone went to Vortex and stayed at McIver Park, the national news would not be filled with violence in the streets of Portland. And as one long hair stated it, when Portland takes the bad trip. Vortex One officially started 
on August 28, 1970. It was called by many names. And historian Matt Love has chronicled many of them in his quintessential book on the subject, The Far Out Story of Vortex One. The governor's boss, Build as an organic, biodegradable festival of life, Vortex was seen by many as a revolution within a revolution and an opportunity to transform society as a whole. This is a very prevalent theme that runs through this seemingly simple story of a hippie rock festival in Oregon. Even the family, the organizers of the event, to use the term loosely, claim that Vortex sees itself as a catalyst for cultural genesis. They distributed a poem explaining Vortex One at a press conference announcing the festival. Entitled, A Rainbow is Curved Air, it read, And then all wars were ended, arms of every kind were outlawed, and the masses gladly contributed them to the foundries in which they were melted down and the metal poured back into the earth. The Pentagon was turned on its side and painted purple, yellow, and green. All boundaries were dissolved. The slaughter of animals was forbidden. The whole of lower Manhattan became a meadow in which unfortunates from the Bowery were allowed to live out their fantasies in the sunshine and were cured. People swam in the sparkling rivers under blue skies streaked only with incense pouring from the new factories. The energy from dismantled nuclear weapons provided free heat and light. World health was restored. An abundance of organic vegetables and fruits and grains were growing wild along the discarded highways. National flags were sewn together into brightly colored circus tents under which politicians were allowed to perform harmless theatrical games. The concept of work was forgotten. Who am I to stand and wonder to wait while the wheels of fate slowly grind my life away? Who am I? There wasn't really a plan for Vortex. 
It just kind of happened, or has been described, it evolved through an organic process, which is a beautiful thing to be sure, but it also comes with some friction. As one hippie present with the setup contingent stated, most of these people are just sitting around listening to music and getting stoned. The more they get stoned, the less they want to work. Once the festival was in full swing, a truly odd environment evolved. It was something utopian, peaceful and free-flowing, indeed organic and biodegradable, youthful. An Oregonian writer penned that campsites built by the youths show ingenuity, if little architectural talent. Wigwams predominate, surrounded by tents of plastic and sticks, reworked and converted old buses and trucks, painted gaudy colors, and a few canvas tents. A common remembered attendee at Vortex One was a naked hot dog seller who had a helium balloon tied to his penis. Kick-Ass History's resident historian, Doug Kank Crispin, sat down with Vortex One historian, Matt Love. So tell me, what's the most kick-ass story from Vortex besides the balloon on the dong? Um, there's uh, several stories that come to mind. One is uh, um, somebody brought a cougar on a leash, and there's a photograph of that of the book, and they leashed it under this Nash, this old Nash. There was an um, anaconda that got loose in the park one night. But really, the most incredible story is, to me, there was the partying, the music, you know, the drugs, the food, that it was the partnership between the government and the youth to solve a problem with no irony, no political agenda outside of just that event and solving, you know, let's not have violence in Portland. The Legion's coming, you know, the, we've got these agent provocateurs that have embedded themselves in Portland's anti-war movement. They're gonna cause trouble as we later found out that they did. So the greatest story of Vortex to me is not the party, it's the collaboration between the young people and their government to solve a problem. I find that still inspiring. And of course, what would a giant rock festival be without drugs? Historian Doug Kank Crispin. Drugs, of course, were everywhere. Marijuana is almost as prevalent in MacGyver as cigarettes. Symbolic of the new nonviolent stance, the marijuana is being shared with straights in huge Indian peace pipes, making the rounds in the park, a reporter wrote. An announcer on the stage would get on the microphone and tell people which LSD would give the taker a bad trip, describing the images on the blotter paper and telling them to stay away. Likewise, the same announcer would broadcast which of the acid gave particularly good, positive, and strong trips and encourage the vortexers to seek out that specific variety. It seems as if there were many free drugs at Vortex. Describing the scene during the setup a few days before the festival, Oregonian reporter Bill Keller wrote that, quote, drugs while plentiful have not been conspicuously for sale. Users seem to be bringing their own and sharing generously, end quote. Others claim that free drugs were distributed by state agencies during the festival. Again, what a better way to keep the hippies in MacGyver Park than to keep them stoned all weekend on free drugs? 
As one interviewee stated in Matt Love's book, quote, Have you heard about the lockers? Yeah, the drug lockers. All the law enforcement agencies in the area took all their confiscated drugs to Vortex. The sandwich board guy was giving it all away. He was probably a narc. All the different pots were blended together. It was incredible. They probably emptied every drug locker in the state inside MacGyver Park, end quote. Another Vortexer reports numerous flatbed trucks driving through the park with people in the back throwing quarter pounds of marijuana into the masses from burlap sacks. McCall's pot party may indeed have been an appropriate and accurate moniker for the festival. Historians Doug Kent Crispin and Matt Love. Was the state handing out free drugs at the festival? Now this is a very interesting question because um, here's the story. I interviewed a guy named Jack Mills who was um, a U.S. bank, I think, U.S. bank vice president, and he was um, the head of the local chapter of the American Red Cross. He's on the record saying this. They got together and they decided they were going to get their money together and they were going to buy, they were going to hire some hippies and then give them some money to go buy some drugs. Now, what those drugs were, I don't know. They didn't even know. And the idea was that they were going to go out to MacIver and give away the drugs if they thought people were about ready to come down to Portland and, you know, foment violence or commit violence. He said that on the record, okay? And they later said it was so successful that they recommended it to the National Red Cross as a policy for nonviolent, you know, for, for uh, violent prevention. But I heard so many stories from people about cars driving in and then people throwing shit off and then they pick it up and it's like bale marijuana, okay, or bricked, okay, where do you get that? And I know for a fact I was able to document this and the other two documentaries that were made, that were made about Vortex completely shied away with this, shied, you know, shied away from it, that the law enforcement agencies were, they loaded those guys up with drugs, okay? And they, they were holding, they went out there at, on an information gathering operation to find out who the dealers were. So there were people who were getting, nobody, the FBI was, the Clackamas County Sheriff's, the Oregon State Police, they loaded things up, they sent people out there. Who knows what happened? Drugs were given away at the park, no question about it. amount of clothing being worn in the park would have failed to fill the back of a pickup truck. Clothing has become more of an oddity than nudity. And it was a shit ton of naked hippies. Conservative estimates of attendance at the festival start at 35,000, and others have flirted with figures around 100,000. That's quite a number of folks not on the streets of Portland prepared to battle with the American Legion. Goose step mama, take a bite and lodge. While you t- 
But what about the tunes at the governor's ball, man? The music at Vortex seems to have been decidedly forgettable, if not just straight up bad. Perhaps the barrel on the stage filled with wine laced with LSD, a ladle hanging on the side, had something to do with the poor performances. Perhaps this impression comes from some who voyaged from Portland that were disappointed in the lack of expected headliners, like Santana, Cream, or The Grateful Dead. Others were expecting hard rock music, and were apparently less than enthused about the less than metal sounds that emerged from the stage. The free rock festival at McIver Park seems to have been free of memorable music. But was all this shit free? Well, not really. Historian Doug Kent Crispin. The stage, the food, and the porta potties were all provided by the private sector. Portland businesses donated to keep Bedlin off the streets of Portland with the looming Legionnaires Convention and relocate the riffraff to Estacada. Zydell, a ship dismantling outfit from Portland, provided giant cauldrons for cooking meals for 40,000 people. A timber company brought in fresh-hewn Douglas fir beams to construct the stage. One farmer drove a dump truck with several tons of carrots to the festival, dumped the load beside the kitchen, and promptly drove off. Some felt that sundry items like these just appearing was a sign of the spiritual beauty created by the vortex. Twenty-five tons of brown rice just appeared, man. Others in the family were more jaded and reluctant to reveal the true origins. Shit, man. Contributions. You know, somebody has some bread and lays it on us. Some lefty activists accused those who planned and attended Vortex as being sellouts. That the whole festival was orchestrated by the government. Indeed, it was. And they were pissed that most people preferred a party over potentially violent political participation, which might be true, too. Sellout or not, Vortex may have helped in curbing anarchy and mayhem in the streets of Portland in 1970. of the festival, Governor Tom McCall himself took part in an ohm circle. That's right, dear ass kicker. Legend has it that after the show, as some hippies were cleaning up, Governor McCall came down in his helicopter, walked the land with the hippies, and joined hands in this very sacred 60s ceremony. As the governor's assistant, Ed Westerdahl, said, He said, You hold hands and you go... But did Vortex One actually succeed in making that transcendental societal shift that underlied the pot-smoking, acid-dropping rock festival? It's hard to say. Again, Vortex One historian Matt Love. They won. Black man's in the White House. Women on the Supreme Court women as governors, doesn't matter if they're Republicans or reactionaries, gay marriage, handicap access, 
I'm, I'm, we're teaching ESL in the schools that I work at. They won. They won. Now, they ensued or incited a backlash of historic proportions. The whole George Bush thing. All those, those fuckers that set out the 60s, like Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Bush, sat on the sidelines in the most dynamic social period of the last 50 years. They were doing blow and drinking and riding it out and not going and fighting and you know dodging the draft. Then they come back 30 years later with a vengeance to undo it all. There was no undoing. They won. If four kids under the age of 20 can get into an Opal Cadet and drive down and knock on the governor's office and say, hey, can we have a park to throw a rock concert for peace? And the governor's aide, Ed Westerdahl, says, okay, let's try it. If they can do that, we can do anything. After the event, one long hair stated that I wish the world could be more like this. It has reached clear to heaven, and it's a way out trip. Vortex will spread. It will turn the material into the spiritual. Another attendee was quoted as saying, It was really beautiful down there. I came for the rock, but I didn't hear it. I am confused. Something happened down there. I don't know what. Historian Matt Love chronicled a street paper that appeared about a year after Vortex called The Stony Gonian. The editor of the rag wrote that Oregon gets people stoned. Oregonians are stony people. The mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the lakes and the streams and the high country and the sand dunes and the ocean and the clean air and the pretty towns get Oregonians high. An Oregonian is anybody who wakes up one morning and digs how lucky he is to be waking up here and says, That's it. I'm an Oregonian. We like that. Hence the name, Stony Gonian. A fitting tribute to Governor McCall's rock festival and a lasting legacy that we at Kick-Ass Oregon History are happy to embrace. I, this is kick-ass history, and not this bullshit, irony-laden stuff that protesters do today, okay? I mean, these kids got in a car and went down and talked to the governor of Oregon. Let's do something for peace. Let's try to make it different. So this could have never happened except in Oregon in the summer of 1970. It wasn't going to happen in California. 
You had Governor McCall facing re-election. He was a maverick. He seized this opportunity. He didn't co-opt the counterculture. He worked with them. There's a difference. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers. And be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. OR History. Don't take the brown double dome acid. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. Here, here's the lesson. Fuck all conventional wisdom. Think outside the box. Don't... A rock festival sponsored by government? Sponsored by the Portland Chamber of Commerce? And a bunch of hippies? Never happened before or hasn't happened since, nor will it ever happen again. No insurance, no permits. Think outside the box, it can happen. If you're willing to work hard. OrHistory.com